welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 18, as we continue our study through the gospel of Matthew the Savior King and His Kingdom. Before we get too far, we're going to lift this time up with a word of prayer. We come humbly before you, God, and we thank you for this time as we get into a section that I've always found, um, I think all of the Bible is important, but there are certain things that we come to that, that really deal with real life more than others. And so uh, this to me is one of those things places, one of those scriptures, this one and the next one. And so I pray, Lord, as we, as we open up your word, that you would minister to our hearts in such a way that, that, we, that we understand better what it is that you're calling us to, that this walk with you that you've called us to is not, is not something that is... Um, in our imagination or, or something that is all spiritual, but it, it applies to our practical lives. And so I pray, Lord, for just an anointing over this time, anointing over my tongue, anointing over our ears, that we would hear what we need to hear this morning. We praise you and we thank you and we love you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that we understand about God is... is we understand, we, we learn about the nature of God. One of those realities of God is unity. God is an expression of unity. The, the very nature of him is unity. Is the, you know, the, and the word unity means the state of being united or joined as a whole. God is one. That's one of our doctrines. God is one represented in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but one God. It's mystery. It's the mystery of the Trinity. It's true. It's not something that our human brains can fully wrap our mind around. We just, we just at some point in our faith accept it as true, even if we can't explain it completely. Jesus told us, we read it earlier, that one of the things earlier, meaning earlier than today, um, we read that uh, Jesus came, one of the things he came to do was to build a church. How many churches? One. One church. And so there's this reality that we see throughout Scripture is the nature of God is unity. He created one church, and so there ought to, so that unity then therefore becomes something of, of, should be of something of great import to us. That, that unity is not something that we, that we you know, kind of hope for. It's something we are to work for, to work toward. And so we're going to talk about that today. 
The context of the verses we're going to look today are the verses that preceded it. So we're going to read those first, starting in verse 6 of Matthew 18. I'm going to read 6 through 11, and then we'll pick it up in 12. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Pretty strong language. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And we all say hallelujah for that. He came to save the lost. In today's text, we're going to look at the parable of the lost sheep. Now, this parable appears twice in the scriptures, once here and once in Luke, but they're not the same. They're different. In the parable in Luke, Luke 15, that parable applies to the lost, those who are not believers. The parable we're going to look at today, he's talking about believers who have wandered. So the lost sheep, but he refers to them differently. He speaks of them differently. And this, this reminds us of something, that we must always interpret the scriptures based on their context. We can't take a scripture out of context. We can't look at this scripture and interpret it the same way that we do the one in Luke, because they're different. Mark Moore says this. Everybody knows who Mark Moore is. I know you don't. He's just one of my commentators. He says this. Jesus used a similar metaphor in two different parables in two different contexts to make two different, albeit similar, points. So the parables, while there's a lot of similarity between them, they're making two different points, and we need to catch that. The the text that we just read in verses 6 through 11, warning us to to not cause one of God's little ones, and we we see that as, as, could see it literally as children, but more, more appropriately as vulnerable believers. Don't cause one of these vulnerable believers to stumble and fall and and to walk away, to sin. And our instruction today is going to talk to us about those who choose to wander away. First, it was a warning not to cause others to wander away, but now it's instruction about those who choose to walk away. Verse 12, excuse me. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? As believers, we are a community of forgiven people right? That's what, that's what we recognize. That's, our, that's what we have in common. Of all the things we have in common, the big one is that we were lost sheep, and then Jesus sought us out. He found us. He saved us, and he put us into his flock. We are one of his people through the forgiveness of sin. Well, 
it would be nice if all the sheep stay in the flock, right? We were talking, I can't remember what, how the topic came up this morning. We were talking about those, you know, the, the, the shepherds and their, and their sheep dogs and how remarkable those dogs are and how well-trained they are. You know, their job is to keep the sheep together and to get them where they need to be. And if you, if you leave the sheep alone, you know what they're going to do? Some of them are going to wander away. And it's the same thing that Jesus is dealing here with in this parable, is that there are times, and we, and we know this for an absolute fact, we know this because if you've been in the faith for more than a minute, you've experienced it. So either you've wandered or someone you know has wandered from the faith. doesn't mean they lost their faith. They just made choices that moved them out of the flock, that moved them into a place where they were separated from the flock by their own choice or by who knows what, how it happens. There's so many different ways why it can happen, but sometimes the sheep get separated from the flock. And God doesn't want that. God wants the flock together. He made them to be together. He created the flock as one in unity to be together. And when we get saved, we all became a part of that flock. And so he created the church, and one of the characteristics of the church, of a, of a, of a church that follows Christ, is unity. There ought to be unity in the church. And if there's disunity in the church, I promise you something, Christ is not on the throne of that church. And it's not what God wants. Verse 13, but we're talking about individuals, not churches right here. And if he should find it, he, the, the shepherd, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And that word perish there has the idea of, of being ruined. God created us to be together. He created the flock, and he is especially sensitive to those who lack faith, who or lack experience to stay in the flock. A, an immature sheep may wander. Uh, you know, and, and the same thing is true of believers. As believers, if we don't have our faith established, if we don't have a good connection to the body of Christ, it is very easy to be distracted by the things of this world and to, and to, and to, and to succumb to the attacks of the things that will come against us in this world. We need each other for health and strength and growing and maturing and, and flourishing. You know, Jesus cares about every single person he saved, right? Does that make sense? When Jesus, you know, applies his salvation onto a believer, that, that believer becomes one of his. And he cares about everyone, whether they're full-grown, mature, and, and producing great fruit for the kingdom, or they're brand new, and they're, they're stumbling over their feet through the, you know, muddying up the water as they go. He loves them all. And if they, get, if they, if they wander, he, he's going to do what he can. He's going to seek them out and bring them back. And I, I love that. I love the fact that Jesus isn't going to just let me wander away. Now, he'll let me make whatever choice I'm going to make, but he's not going to leave me out there by myself. He's going to do something to try to get me back. Now, most Bibles, my Bible included, puts a break between verses 14 and 15. 
I, I say this when you're in, in the Bible studies, you got to take all, if you're, if you're doing a Bible study, take all those breaks out. You know, let the, let the Bible speak to you in its pure, uncommented simplicity. Verse 15 more naturally flows, and it's a part of and a continuation of verse 14. Let's read verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, it feels like a transition, but it's not. In the original language where it says, moreover, if, literally it says, and if. It's not, it's not a change of thought. It is, it, is a, it is a progression of thought. What is he saying here? The reality is that sin damages unity. Sin can break unity. We know that. We know that sin can separate. It does separate. That's, that's what sin does. It breaks, it separates, it damages, it corrupts. And so if unity is God's ideal, one of the things that damages God's ideal is sin. If we look at verses 15 through 17, which we will, it's often referred to as church discipline. And I, I, I don't really care for that description of it because it's not its purpose. Its purpose is not discipline in the way that we typically interpret discipline. The purpose of these verses is not to punish someone who sins, who, who sins against another believer. That's never God's purpose in these kinds of verses. His purpose is to get us to a place where we restore unity. We do what is necessary to get back to God's ideal, which is unity, togetherness, oneness. Doesn't mean we're all the same, but we all have the same goal. We all have the same vision. We all have the same purpose. We are going to be like Jesus in whatever way that he made us to do that. So if your brother sins against you, and that brother, very simple interpretation, it's another believer. If another believer sins against you, believer, what should you do? Listen, when we make mistakes. And, and, and if you're here and you've never made any mistakes, then you're in the wrong place. But if you're like all the rest of us, you've made mistakes. And you've made some mistakes against other believers. You've done something. You've offended them. You've said something. You've, whatever you've done, whatever it might be, could be small, could be great. It damages that unity. And here's the, here's the problem with that. When we do that, it is the first step to wandering away. When we do something against one another, we say something, we, we, you know, you know, we, we sense some sort of you know, disunity within us, it's the first step from somebody wandering away from the flock. These verses are meant. These verses are meant. This is the, this is the part where some people struggle with this. Because these verses are meant to engage the body, you are the body of Christ, in the hard work of maintaining unity in the body. Whose job is it to maintain unity in the body? Yours. 
it's mine too, but my role in that is no greater than yours. It's our role to maintain unity in the body. Now, if you're like most humans, that is not something you're going to volunteer for. Because you know what you have to do to maintain unity sometimes? You got to deal with sin. You have to confront sin. So raise your hand if you love confrontation. I'm raising my hand. I love confrontation. You know why? Confrontation leads to unity. If you're not willing to confront a sinner who's a believer who's in sin, then you're not doing the hard work. Now, you may not love it. I love it personally. I'm just, that's my personality type. I don't mind it. I, I know, I know the fruit that comes out of it. I don't, I don't seek it out. I'm not weird. Well, okay, we'll leave that alone. Laura has her opinion. We'll let her keep her opinion. And we're tempted to run away from or reject someone who has sinned against us, right? And, we, you know, that person has done this, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to, okay, whatever. And we stop. We, 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 we at least emotionally move away from them. Well, what is that? That's disunity. The question we need to ask ourselves when somebody sins against us and we are tempted to separate ourselves from that person is, am I responsible for their spiritual welfare? Am I responsible for that? Oh, I can tell you what you're thinking. Most of you are thinking, no, I'm not responsible for them. Really? All sin separates. That's the only thing it can do. It separates us from God. It separates us from one another. It separates us from all the good that God has for us. And if unity is God's ideal, if, if unity, oneness, is God's ideal, then rejecting a sinning believer and separating ourselves from them cannot be God's ideal. He would insist to us, you must help them back. God may have put you into their lives for the very reason that they're going to sin, maybe against you, and you are the one that God created for the purpose of helping them back. Galatians 6, verse 1 says this, Brethren, that means brothers and sisters, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you be tempted. Now, I read that, and I hear a command. It's not a choice. It's a command. If I, if I want to call myself a spiritual man, which I like to call myself a spiritual man, then I, I, am, I am mandated by God to play a role in restoring a sinner back into a right relationship with God and a right relationship with me, a right relationship with the people around them. That's my responsibility as a believer. Not because I'm a pastor, because I'm a believer. And he says here, if you do that, you have gained your brother. The point of going to your 
sinning believer, brother or sister, is to restore unity. I am going to, I'm going to have this conversation with them, even though it makes me very uncomfortable. I'm going to do it because God wants unity. And if I'm feeling disconnected, then I, I must, that God must have a role for me in this process. Jesus said, and we're going to get to it, not in the immediate future, but in chapter 22 of Matthew, maybe in a couple of months, maybe in a month, we'll see. It's the, the greatest commandment, the thing, the one thing you can do that God would say, yes, that's what I'm looking for, is to love him with all of your being and to love others. It's not loving to let a wandering believer continue to wander without reaching out, without trying to do something to draw that believer back into fellowship. Now, we, now we have a problem with that in our culture. We live in a mind-your-own-business culture. Don't, you know, don't tell me how to live. If you've ever had teenagers, you've probably heard that. You can't tell me how to live. Watch me. It's not, it's not loving to let a, let a wandering sinner stay separated from God and from others. It's not loving. And we should want to love, right? We should do everything in our power to restore that believer back into the flock. Remember, God is unity. Everything about him is unity. And we must keep in mind that a wandering sheep cannot be expected to find its own way back. You wouldn't expect that. That's why they're sheepdogs, to go out and get them. That's why the shepherd is around, to go out and seek them out and to find them. And if we call ourselves spiritual people, we call ourselves men and women of God, then we, we should play a part in that. We should cooperate with the work of the shepherd and go out and help him to find them. Listen, we must love them enough to seek them and lead them back. In James 5, 19, it says this, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, somebody does that work, that hard work of helping that believer back from that lostness, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. God has called each and every one of us to this role of, of, of maintaining and building unity in the body of Christ. It's not, a, it's not something certain people in the church do. It's something that all of us should do. And we achieve this unity of the body of Christ is achieved through biblical faith, believing the things the Bible says, and obedience to those things and submission to the will of God. Unity is broken so many ways, easily broken by weak faith, by disobedience, willfully or ignorantly following our own desires, so many different ways. And very often the ways that unity is broken is just through our own misunderstanding of the world around us. Somebody, somebody doesn't say good morning to us and we think, oh no, 
They hate me now. I don't hate you, Laura, I promise. Happy birthday. All sin damages unity. All of it. We see it in marriages, we see it in families, we see it in churches, we see it in communities, we see it in the world around us, obviously. And God's desire is that we would strive towards unity. Getting back to that oneness that God created us for. And we do that through repentance. Well, what do you do if going to that person doesn't work? You go to that person, you tell them, you know, you do that hard work, that, hard, that very uncomfortable thing, hey, you sinned against me. What if that doesn't work? What if they won't acknowledge it? What if they won't repent? Well, then we have verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Will not hear means they refuse to acknowledge what you're saying. They don't want to hear it. They will not repent. Now, this is not meant, taking one or two with you is not meant to gang up on the sinner. That's not what that's for. It's meant to bring a sense of balance, a sense of, of to bring wisdom and discernment to the conversation. But it should also be done privately. You know, the one or two people that you invite, a lot of people that are spiritually mature enough to actually help in that situation. There are times where, you know, two people, they have some sort of a disconnect and they can't resolve it themselves. Okay, we need to bring in help. This is such an important step that we, don't, that we don't do that. Hey, you sinned against me. They don't respond. So we say, well, forget it. I tried. Nope. God doesn't let us off that easy. Just because, this is so important, because just because you believe someone sinned against you doesn't mean they actually did. What? Give me a, I'll give you an illustration. Suppose Chuck were to say, I'm going to pick on you, sorry. Can you handle it? Good. I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to have to repent for that later. <laughs> Rick, he is a terrible singer, and I'm offended by that. I go to Chuck, and I say, Chuck, I can't believe you said that. And he, and he doesn't repent. He doesn't repent for that terrible, vicious attack upon my character and self-identity. What should I do? Well, I'm going to ask Larry, and I'm going to call on David because, you know, he's the worship leader, and I'm going to bring him in. We're going to talk. We're going to, I'm going to, we're going to set Chuck right. Right? So we get together. I tell them what Chuck has done to me, and they look at me, and they just shake their heads. First off, Chuck having an opinion on how I sing is not a sin. So therefore, he has not sinned against you. And oh, by the way, he's right. You, you sound like screeching something or other. Just because you feel like somebody sinned against you doesn't mean they have. One of the absolute necessities for, for unity is humility. You cannot have unity apart from humility. And so when I, when, when, I, when I perceive that somebody has sinned against me, the very first thing I've got to do is pause and ask myself the question, am I, am I right to even feel this way? Is this true? 
So by bringing in one or two others that are mature enough to actually speak wisdom and discernment and truth into the situation, I avoid allowing my emotions to determine how we get past this and we get to unity. Now, if I've actually sinned, I, 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 there's an account that happens where I, I said something in a message, and it was one of those throwaway comments that I will sometimes make that I should just keep in my brain and not come, let them come out of my mouth, and it came out, and somebody came to me after the service, and they, and they confronted me about it, and I, I was like, oh, you're right. That was a terrible thing to say. It wasn't, it wasn't I don't know if I would call it sin, but it was just insensitive. And I appreciated that person coming to me. And I've never said that particular thing again. I just let other things out now. But We've got to allow that work to happen in us. And we have to be willing to do it, even when it's uncomfortable. I've had people come to me, and I can tell they're very uncomfortable with what they're about to say to me. It doesn't happen all the time, thank goodness. I'm not always blowing it. But the people come to me, and they'll tell me things. And sometimes I agree with what they're saying, and sometimes I don't. I had somebody call me before the board one time. Called me out. Said, you've sinned, pastor, you've sinned. And I said, well, first off, I disagree with you. And well, well, we, we need to call the board together to talk about this. Okay. We called the board together. They didn't agree with them. Thankfully, that doesn't happen every day either. But we must be humble. Maybe I have made a mistake. Maybe I have done something. Maybe I have a wrong understanding of this particular thing. And if we're not willing to accept that, we're not willing to acknowledge our sin before others, then, then we're, there's no hope for unity. There's no hope for oneness in the body. And listen, that's where strength comes from in the body, is from oneness. Now, we're not all the same. That's not what it's talking about. But we all have the same purpose and vision. That's to be like Christ. Must be humble. Well, then Jesus goes on to say, well, what if that doesn't work? What if Chuck just won't repent? Verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, them meaning whoever else you brought along, tell it to the church. But he refuses even to hear the church. Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Tell it to the church. That doesn't mean we're going to call you up in front of the church and point fingers at you and tattoo you with a big letter on your forehead. But it means calling in those in, those in leadership in the church, like, like organizing the board around, around a particular topic or talking to the pastor about it, bringing the pastor into the conversation. If that sinner has sinned and it remains unrepentant, then we need to, we need to deal with that because all sin separates. And the longer we just allow sin to happen, the more separation that takes place. And we ought to do everything we can to restore it. The purpose of this, the purpose of calling the one or two together, the purpose of going one-on-one -on -one with that person is to restore unity, to reconcile. The purpose of bringing the others in is for reconciliation. The purpose for calling the church in is for reconciliation, to get back to unity. You might question, why is this so important? Why would Jesus make a, a big deal about this? Because disunity is like leaven. A little bit 
just a little bit in the church can spread to the whole body. And it's damaging. It may start out small, but it won't stay that way. And he says here that if they won't respond even to the church, they won't respond to the pastor or to the board or to whoever, whoever else is involved in this, then we need to treat them like a heathen or a tax collector. And, and, that's, and that's not to say that we are to reject them, but in our view, we treat them as if somebody who needs to meet Jesus. That whatever whatever reason, if they're unwilling to repent, we have to ask the question, are they even saved? We don't know, but we need to treat them as someone who needs to meet Jesus. And how would you treat an unbeliever if they showed up at church? You would love them, right? Say, yes, we would love them, pastor. That's what we do. Do we expect them to act like a believer? No. Why? Well, because they aren't one. You don't expect an unbeliever to act like a believer. It's unfair to them to expect that. You expect them to act like an unbeliever. And then you treat them with the love and the grace and the mercy that God gives you to help them to meet their Savior. Right? Does that make sense? Somebody say, yes, Pastor, that makes sense. We don't reject them. Verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. The context of verses 18 to 20 are the verses that preceded it. Too often, too often, People interpret these verses separate from the context. And they apply it to, you know, hey, we get together, we pray, we can get anything we want. It's not what it's saying. It's, it's, reply, it's relying, it's, re, it's relating to this idea of gathering together, the body together, to, do, to, to restore unity within the body when we have a believer, a person who claims to be a believer is sinning. What are we going to do about it? Well, first, we're going to do everything possible to restore that believer back into fellowship with the, with the body. But if we decide something else has to happen, if the church, those in leadership, gather together and under the, under the, the, the leading of the Word of God and the, and the Spirit of God, they make a decision, they rest in the reality that God in heaven agrees and stands with them. That's what God's calling us to, to have so much faith that if someone comes into this body and their sin is so damaging to the unity of the body that the church makes a decision, you got to go. That if they are doing it under the leading of the Holy Spirit, that God in heaven is going to agree. Now, I pray, I, well, I'm going to say that we have had to do it. Not very often, 20 years we've been, the church has been around, and we've had to do it once or twice. And I pray, pray, Lord, get your act together, and we don't have to do it again. It's your birthday, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some extra stuff today. No, no. My first response is always grace. My first response is always forgiveness. My first response is always going to be doing everything in my power to restore the only time I would even consider 
asking somebody to leave the church is if their presence was so damaging that we could not function as a body. It doesn't happen very often. He says here, if they're gathered together in my name. That's, that's an important phrase, and we don't want to miss it. This speaks of, of, of having the authority, speaking under the authority of Christ, and that if, if God has called some into a place of leadership in the body of Christ, then he gives them the authority over the body of Christ. And we, as, as independent, uber-independent Americans, we don't, we don't like that very much. But the reality is that God has given some authority over the body of Christ. And he calls us to do what we do in his name, as if he were doing it. That, we, that when we stand up and we do or we say all these different things, we do it in his name. When you say, I'm, I'm praying in Jesus' name, I'm praying as if Jesus were doing this. I'm preaching as if Jesus were preaching this. Yeah, you get that. The, the reality is we're doing it in obedience to him, in, in submission to him, in, in glor- trying to glorify him in all the things that we're doing. It also gives us a sense that when we do it in his name, we're doing it intentionally to glorify him. And we always ought to take that into consideration. Is what am I about to do, can it glorify God? Even in the area of discipline. I, I, I don't want you to miss this, because I think it's so easy to miss this right here. In the very last phrase, where Jesus says, I am there in the midst of them is a radical declaration of deity. He's saying, if two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Think about that right now. How many groups of two or three or more are gathered in his name right now? Can you say a lot? A lot. Where is Jesus? Right there. What are, what are the traits and what are the natures or characteristics of God? He's, he's omnipresent. He can be everywhere at once. But it means more than that. When he's in the midst, if he's everywhere present all the time, then he says, I am there. It means more than that. I'm not just there, but I'm there with you. I'm there, I'm there united with you and working for you in whatever that thing might be. Without Christ, there can be no unity. We can see that all around the world, all around us. The world is lost. There is no unity. The things that we see going on, the things that, that are happening just, just every day, so many that we can't even keep track of them. There's so much darkness, so much disunity in the world around us and the pain and the suffering that's coming from it is it's more than I've ever seen in my lifetime. It's all because Christ is not in the midst. Without Christ, there can be no unity. With Christ, there can be. When we gather together, one of our goals one of our objectives, one of our realities is that we are here to be one. 
We're, not a, we're, we're one body united to glorify God, to worship God, to praise God, to pray to God, to, to hear from God. Next time, we're going to discuss the main thing that makes unity possible. Again, another radically important message. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and His Kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus. Thank you.